0: Is the David that we have studied, the David of the Psalms, the David who refuses to strike Saul, even though Saul is a threat, because that would involve an offense against the anointed of God. Is that David a Machiavellian man? No. Rarely, I think, ladies and gentlemen, have we seen a statesman less Machiavellian. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 165, Ezekiel versus Machiavelli. I'm Mayor Salavatra. And here comes in the question whether it is better to be loved rather than feared, or feared rather than loved. It might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both, but since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than loved. This is probably the most famous quote from a famous book about politics called The Prince. It was written by an author whose description of the traits to be cultivated by the crafty statesman has given us the adjective Machiavellian. Strikingly, throughout Ezekiel and especially in our passages, the prophet also references a prince, and this allows us to compare and contrast two very different texts about princes and about politics itself. In chapters 12, 17, and 19, the focus of Ezekiel is on a by and large unnamed and unidentified individual of royal status who is often accorded a specific political title, nasi, prince, Or, as Dr. Tova Genzel puts it in her preface to her very instructive discussion of these chapters, quote, Ezekiel's next prophecy deals with an obscure figure referred to as the Nasi, whose identity is not revealed even in the divine communication, which explains Ezekiel's symbolic actions. The prevailing assumption is that this man is Zedekiah. The description of his exile in the Book of Kings and in Jeremiah conforms to the symbolic act presented in our chapter, end quote. As we know from our previous studies, Nebuchadnezzar took King Yehonia, or Yehoyachin, into exile and installed in Jerusalem another member of the Davidic family, who came to be known as Zedekiah or Zedekiah. The prophet Jeremiah warned Zedekiah not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, but to submit. Zedekiah instead attempts to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar's yoke and to seek the help of Egypt in doing so. Zedekiah, as we have previously seen is then taken captive following the destruction of Jerusalem and blinded by Nebuchadnezzar's men. Thus, in Ezekiel 12.12, we are informed of Zedekiah's ultimate fate. And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. They shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby. He shall cover his face that he see not the ground with his eyes. My net also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. This is Zedekiah, brought to Babylon, blind. Why is Zedekiah here called prince and not king? Dr. Genzel offers several interesting suggestions, but perhaps the answer lies in the ancestor of Zedekiah's house. David, for Judaism, is the true standard of kingship, and the prophet is trying to tell us that those that do not live up to his standard do not deserve the title of king. In defying Jeremiah, Zedekiah looked only to politics and not to the warnings of God. This is something that David would never do, and it is with this in mind, perhaps, that we can better understand the verses that are presented as a rebuke of Zedekiah. Thus, in chapter 17, Ezekiel refers to Yochonia, who is already in exile, as the king, and calls Zedekiah the king's seed. Thus, in verse 12, as part of a parable, Ezekiel describes how Zedekiah thought that he could ally with Egypt in his rebellion against Babel. Say now to the rebellious house, know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem and hath taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon and hath taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and hath taken an oath from him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up and that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? So Ezekiel tells us. As an act of statesmanship, what Zedekiah did was not irrational at all. His war against Nebuchadnezzar, the rebellion against Babylon, his attempt at alliance with Egypt, all could be deemed politically rational. But from the king's preceding Zedekiah onward, Jeremiah had warned the house of David that salvation would only come if they focus on fixing the immorality and sin that festered in Jerusalem. The sacred city contained idolatry and oppression, violations against God and man. And the prophet here is seeking to criticize the king for not truly being kingly, for not truly following David's example. The writer George Will once gave us a felicitous phrase about politics that is useful. And though Will's own approach to politics is, I think, different now, the phrase speaks particularly to our discussion. Will spoke of statecraft as soulcraft, and I would utilize this in saying that David's greatness lay in the way that he crafted not only the polity of Israel, but also through his leadership, the soul of biblical Israel. Thus, a contrast emerges between the truly great biblical prince and the prince of Machiavelli. It is Machiavelli who wrote as follows, A prince ought to have no other aim or thought, nor select anything else for his study, than war and its rules and discipline. For this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules, and it is of such force that it not only upholds those who are born princes, but it often enables men to rise from a private station to that rank. And, on the contrary, it is seen that when princes have thought more of ease than of arms, they have lost their states. Machiavelli then later adds, And therefore a prince who does not understand the art of war over and above the other misfortunes already mentioned cannot be respected by his soldiers nor can he rely on them. He ought never, therefore, to have out of his thoughts the subject of war, and in peace he should addict himself more to its exercise than in war. This he can do in two ways, the one by action, the other by study. End quote. So Machiavelli tells us, Now war, ladies and gentlemen, is indeed at times important, and the study of war is therefore critical. But for the Bible, it cannot be the only thought occupying the mind of the statesman. And it is here that the legacy of Zedekiah's ancestor, David, is so instructive, because ladies and gentlemen, there was no more crafty warrior than David. And war, to paraphrase Machiavelli, certainly did play a role in David's rise from commoner to royal position. But at the same time, anyone who has studied the Psalms sees that David was not a man who had only war on his mind. Indeed, as we have argued in the past, the reason why David is chosen as king precisely because rather than see his military success as inspiration for arrogance, he reverently accords his success to God, highlighting thereby to Israel that there is something higher than war itself. Thus, at times, one is struck by the utter lack of political self-interest illustrated by David, such as when he refuses to kill Saul when he has the chance, even though, as we have seen in previous discussions, that Saul sought to kill him. David refrained for the reason that it was unthinkable to strike anyone who had been anointed by a prophet of God. We have mentioned before how the Bible scholar Robert Alter has argued that David is, quote, the first full-length portrait of a Machiavellian prince in Western literature, end quote. And Alter adds that David's story is, quote, about man in all his susceptibility to the brutalization and the seductions of exercising power, end quote. But as I argued in commentary, I think this is incorrect. In truth, the reason why David is so compelling is because this man of war is also a man of love and of faith. And ultimately, David illustrates that it is faith that is for him most important. Does David falter and fail, overcome at times by anger and desire? Yes. But is the David that we have studied, the David of the Psalms, the David who refuses to strike? Saul, even though Saul is a threat, because that would involve an offense against the anointed of God. Is that David a power-hungry prince? Is that David a Machiavellian man seeking to wield power above all? No. Rarely, I think, ladies and gentlemen, have we seen a statesman less Machiavellian than David. Ezekiel follows his criticism of Zedekiah with a description of glory yet to be attained by the house of David. Chapter 17, verse 22. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain, an eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs, and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof they shall dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. This, of course, is a prophetic declaration of ultimate Davidic restoration. And as Dr. Genzel notes, it is speaking of the line of Jehoiachin who has been taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babel. Or as she puts it, quote, this conclusion once again emphasizes the unique status of Jehoiachin throughout the book of Ezekiel. And indeed, it is Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiachin, who will eventually lead the nation at the beginning of the Second Temple period. End quote. It is Joachim's descendants, not Zedekiah's, that will hearken the Jewish return to the Holy Land. And the message is that only when the house of David reconnects to David and all that he embodies can David's line flourish once again. Whether Zerubbabel will fully rise to this calling is something that we will consider as we look to later biblical books. But Ezekiel's clear and resonant message is that no descendant of David can live up to his heritage without communing with the legacy of his glorious ancestor. In a famous letter, Machiavelli described his study of history as follows, When evening comes, I return home and go into my study. On the threshold, I strip off my muddy, sweaty workday clothes and put on the robes of court and palace. And in this graver dress, I enter the antique courts of the ancients and am welcomed by them. And there I taste the food that alone is mine and for which I was born. And there I make bold to speak to them and ask the motives of their actions. And they, in their humanity, reply to me, and for the space of four hours I forget the world, remember no vexation, fear poverty no more, tremble no more at death, I pass indeed into their world. End quote. This is indeed an admirable description of how we ought to study the past, as long as the ancients whose company one keeps and from whom one is inspired are the right ones. The same could be said for another passage by Machiavelli, wherein the author tells us that, quote, a prudent man should always follow in the path trodden by great men, and imitate those who are most excellent, so that if he does not attain to their greatness, at any rate, he will get some tinge of it. End quote. The question, of course, is who is truly great? And for the Bible, it is a thoroughly un-Machiavellian man who emerges as the greatest statesman of all. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.